If you've got your Bibles, and I know actually some of you are even bringing this to church on Sunday morning, which is awesome. So uh, go ahead and get out your Bibles, and we are going to be in John 3 this morning. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John 3. And as you're turning uh, to John 3 this morning, I thought we would take a little bit of an uh, informal poll. Um, how many of you, uh, next Sunday is the Super Bowl, and I just thought, well, we're, we're kind of people leaning with all this, but how many of you are rooting uh, for the Los Angeles Rams? Anybody going to be rooting for the Rams next weekend? Okay, a few of you. All right. Uh, how about uh, the Bengals, uh, Cincinnati Bengals? Okay. Yeah, I, well, we're in the Midwest, so I guess it makes sense, and, you know, I don't know. It's been quite a, a foot ball season this year, and so, um, you know, lots of upsets. Um, I know you Packers fans aren't bitter, raw, or anything like that, right? But uh, it's, it's kind of sports, right? You win some, you lose some, and you're never quite sure. You know, some of you might remember uh, back in 2009, uh, there was this college football game. There was this young whippersnapper. He played for the uh, Florida Gators, uh, a guy by the name of Tim Tebow, uh, you might recall. And uh, he put John 3.16 under his eyes. And uh, at that ball game, uh, apparently something like 90 million people Googled uh, John 3.16, and it was quite a a witness, quite a a testimony, uh, you know, to just kind of get Scripture out there. Three years later, uh, almost exactly three years later, uh, to the day, uh, this young uh, Tim Tebow was now playing for uh, the Denver Broncos, and again, he did the John 3.16 thing under the eyes. And uh, people, again, were Googling what in the world is going on uh, with this guy. And uh, that happened to be a, a playoff game against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, and who roots for the Steelers? I mean, come on, they, thou shall not, right? You know, you can't root for the Steelers if you're a Jesus follower, right? Because that just goes against the Bible. But anyway, so uh, Tim Tebow... Um, uh, he, he won the game, you know, with the, the Denver Broncos in overtime. It was a very exciting game, uh, as they say. And uh, so it, it was great. It was awesome, you know. And again, lots and lots of people Googled uh, John 3.16 on that day. And so anyways, as he's coming down after the ball game uh, to the press conference, if you will, uh, this guy comes up to him, uh, a, a public relations guy, and he says this, you are not going to believe what just happened. And Tim Tebow's thinking, well, we just, you know, won. We're moving on in the playoffs and all that good stuff. And this is what the guy says. During the game, you threw for 316 yards. Your yards per rush were 3.16. Your yards per completion, 31.6. The ratings on TV that day were 31.6. The time of possession that they held the ball, 31 minutes and 6 seconds. 90 million people heard this and were like, wow, what's going on? They're Googling John 3.16. They're trying to figure out. It was the number one thing on Twitter, Facebook. And Tim Tebow said, you know, a lot of people said this was just a coincidence. He says, I say we have a big God. I know many of you have heard that story of Tim Tebow in John 3.16. And we continue to see John 3.16 show up at all sorts of sporting events, don't we? 
And even if you're not a sports fan, maybe you're a shopper, anybody like to go clothes shopping and admit it? If you ever go to Forever 21, on the bottom of their shopping bags, it says John 3.16. Or if any of you like good burgers and fries, no amazing burgers and fries, In-N-Out Burger, and on the bottom of In-N-Out Burger cups, John 3.16. Isn't it interesting that this particular Bible verse has made its way into pop culture? But I think there's a danger when a Bible verse, when anything from Scripture actually becomes so popular out in the world, I think it loses its meaning, it loses its punch. And then maybe this morning, as Jeff was talking about John 3.16, you know, introducing this to you all this morning, you're like, yep, I know that one. I've even got that one memorized. I think there's a danger for all of us to grow a little bit complacent. So I'm going to invite us to pray this morning as we dig into this text uh, and invite God uh, to to renew us and refresh us. Lord, thank you. Uh, Thank you, God, for the ways in which you have used so many people, so many platforms to make your word known out into the world. God, give us fresh insight Give us fresh eyes, give us fresh ears, give us open hearts, open minds, and open lives to hear the good news of your love for us is proclaimed through John 3.16. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. John 3, beginning with verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, if you've been following along uh, in your daily Bible reading, you know that Nicodemus was a bit, uh, uh, he was an important guy. He was a, a professional religious guy. He was a big deal in their culture. And Pharisees, they were the, not just the, the, the professional religious people, but they were the, the elite, the special forces, if you will, of the professional people. And the job of the Pharisees was to know Scripture so well that they had, mo- they had it all memorized. They knew all 613 laws, and not just they knew them, but they could expound upon them. They could teach about them in the finest and the most minute of all details. He was a a profound, smart guy. He knew Scripture. And the reason why the Pharisees studied Scripture so much is so that they could keep um, the congregations following after God. Whenever there was a dispute, whenever they were wondering, should we do this? Should we do that? We don't understand that. They would go to the Pharisees and say, hey, help us to understand what's going on here. And the second reason why the Pharisees, it was so important for them to know Scripture, is because they were supposed to be the ones, the first ones who would identify the Messiah. They would be so familiar with Scripture that when the Messiah came onto the scene, they'd be like, here he is. And they could point to all the verses and the references throughout the Old Testament to point to the Messiah. And I think it's really interesting how this conversation begins. 
Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and we don't know why. We don't know if it was because he was ashamed, if he's embarrassed. Maybe he was just busy during the day. I don't know. Rabbis often said the best time to read Scripture was in the evening when it was quiet and all the distractions and all the the noise and the busyness of the day. So maybe it was just that. We don't know for sure. And so he shows up at night to have this one-on-one encounter with Jesus. And he begins the conversation this way, rabbi, which is a term of respect. So Nicodemus does not show up with an antagonistic attitude. He doesn't go, he's not showing up to pick a fight. I think Nicodemus was coming from the temple where Jesus had just cleansed the temple recently. Now, we don't know that conjecture on my part. I think he was there. I think he saw the things that Jesus did, the overturning of the money changers. And I think he's like, there's something different about this guy. And so he comes to Jesus and he honors him with this title of rabbi. He says, no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Those seven signs, we talked about the water to wine at the wedding of Cana last week. And later on in John, we learn that Jesus performed so many signs, so many miraculous things, that if they were all to be recorded, there were not enough libraries in the world. They're coming on the heels of this miraculous sign of water to wine. And like we talked about last week, the purpose of a sign is not simply for Jesus to go, look at me, but it's really to point to something beyond Jesus really about, hey, are you the Messiah? That's why Nicodemus was there, because he was supposed to recognize the Messiah, and so he shows up. It was his way of asking, there's something different about you. Are you the Messiah? And if so, now what? Now what do we do? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter uh, a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. It's a very confusing conversation between these two very learned men, these two really smart guys. If you've ever been around uh, really smart people and they're kind of having a, a conversation, you're like, ooh, I have no idea what they're talking about. That's what's going on here. They're talking past one another. Have you ever been reading uh, Scripture before and you're like, I don't understand what's going on here? It's, I'm, I'm confused. Anybody? Just me? Yeah, hey, you'd make a great disciple uh, because that's what's going on most of the time is people were confused. Even Nicodemus, this really smart guy, was confused. And he was confused because he was Jewish. And Jewish people, everybody knew that they were the chosen ones by God. So why in the world would Nicodemus or anyone who's Jewish need to be born again? 
They don't need to be. They're God's chosen people. Certainly not the Pharisees. They were the elite. They were the ones who followed all the rules. We hear this title, this word, these words, born again today, and it's, it continues, I think, to cause a lot of confusion. What does it mean to be a born-again Christian? You ever heard that before? Are you a born-again Christian? Anybody ever heard that before? It's almost like it's a sect of Christianity. It's separate from the rest of Christianity, or it's like this subset of Christianity, a born-again Christian. According to Jesus, if you're in Christ, if you are a Jesus follower, you're a born-again Christian. It's not something separate. That's who we are. We are born again as Jesus followers. So I just want to clarify that for you. I know sometimes Lutherans can get a little bit funny about this idea of being labeled as born again. If someone says to you, hey, are you a born again Christian? The answer is yes. I'm born again in Jesus Christ. Some of you are getting uncomfortable right now and you're thinking to yourself, well, aren't you just kind of, come on, aren't we just kind of splitting hairs over language, semantics? Aren't we really just talking about baptism here? I mean, Jesus says, born of water and the Spirit, right? Isn't that what we're talking about is baptism? Well, yes and no. See, the thing is, I just want to clarify this this, uh, this morning, this idea of what baptism is. Because oftentimes I hear people have a false understanding of what baptism is. People equate baptism with salvation. You ever heard that before? Well, if so-and-so is baptized, then they're saved. The problem with that is, it's not in the Bible. We so, so, so oftentimes think to ourselves, well, you know, if, if we're going to, um, someone's going to be saved, they, they've got to be baptized. And that's true. I don't want to lower the importance of what baptism is. But as we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as we read the four Gospels in terms of what Jesus and the boys did, is they didn't just go walking around spraying people with water. Right? What, was their, what did they do? They walked around and they would talk to people and they would invite people to repent, just like what we did at the beginning of our worship service this morning. We confessed our sins. This is what it means to be a Jesus follower, is to repent, to turn away from our own sin. This is what the disciples did. This is what Jesus did, is they invited people into a relationship with him, and they were baptized. And I hear this over and over. Oh, if you want to be saved, you just need to be baptized. I mean, think about the time when Jesus was hanging on a cross. He's got a thief on his right and his left. One of them says to him, oh, come on, you know, he's giving Jesus the business a hard time, right? The other guy confesses his sin. He says, I'm a sinner. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What's Jesus, what does he say? Uh, dude, too late. You're not baptized. 
right? That's not what he says. He says, surely you will be with me in paradise. We cannot get hung up over baptism and what it is and what it isn't. In fact, this was a problem in the early church even. What is baptism? And the Apostle Paul clarifies this in 1 Corinthians because there was a dispute. There was an argument about what it is. And he says, hey, I baptized you and I baptized you and I baptized you. But don't get hung up, folks. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. I think oftentimes we get stuck or hung up or we have this false understanding is that baptism equals salvation. Several years ago, uh, I had a guy in a congregation I was serving, his name's Larry, uh, come to me and say, hey, um, would you baptize my grandchild? And I'm like, well, tell me about it. And he said, well, my, my son and daughter-in-law, uh, they live in Massachusetts, and uh, they're coming to town, and we'd like to schedule a private baptism. I'm like, first of all, baptism is never private. Baptism is a public affair. It's what we do in community. We do this together. I said, tell me more about the family. Well, they don't go to church, um, my, my son and daughter-in-law. Uh, and I'm like, well, what we're going to do, if we were to do this in a public uh, space, in a public setting, in a public worship service, is I'm going to ask everybody to make some promises. And I'm going to need your son and daughter-in-law to promise to raise that child in the Christian faith. And if they can't do that, then we're not doing this baptism because I'm not going to have them stand in front of a congregation and in front of God and lie. Ooh, he didn't like that. He left the church. He left the church he, he, because in his mind, I just got to get that baby wet. His salvation will be secure. Right? We've heard this before. It's part of our just... I don't know, and so that's not what this sermon's about this morning, but I just, I just wanted to clarify that this morning. We treat baptism almost as if it's like a, 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 a rabbit's foot, right? Or a lucky charm of some sort. But you Lutherans, especially you Lutherans, this is what Luther said, the one who believes and is baptized will be saved. Without faith, baptism is of no use. Although, in and itself, it is an infinite divine treasure. Baptism is wonderful. It's awesome. But without faith, it's worthless. Baptism without faith is just like having a good bath. It just feels good, right? That critical element of faith is so important. And this is what Jesus is talking about in this conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus continues, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. More confusion. What is going on? Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, You... Are Israel's teacher, Jesus said. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. 
And Nicodemus is going, who is this guy? He talks in the plural. That's just weird, right? But of course, what Jesus is doing is he's communicating who he is. He's part of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not just a conversation. Jesus is speaking and communicating great theological ideas of who he is as the Messiah, but he hasn't come alone. He's actually claiming to be God. He's claiming divinity. Now, for a Jewish person, person, especially a Pharisee, this is heresy. Nobody claims to be God. And I think it's so interesting uh, what's going on here. Nicodemus doesn't freak out. He doesn't start tearing his clothes. He doesn't get angry. He just continues to have this conversation with Jesus, which I think means Nicodemus, pretty convinced that Jesus might just be the Messiah. Because this was such an outrageous statement for Jesus to refer to himself in the plural. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, I get it. You're a religious guy. You're a holy guy. You read your Bible. You go to church. You even go to Sunday school. You put money in the offering plate. You do all these things. But let's be clear. You're not like three quarters of the way to heaven because of your good works. But this is really what religion is all about. It's this this reaching up. It's this attempt to climb up the ladder to get to heaven. This is what all religions are about. And Jesus says, it doesn't work that way. You can't climb up. You can't even get to the first rung. That's how separated you are from God. Only God can come down and rescue you. Only God can save you. And Nicodemus is like, This is pretty different than what I was taught as a kid growing up. And then Jesus makes this Old Testament reference, connecting the Old Testament to himself. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. We look at this image This is what Jesus is doing from Numbers, the Old Testament book of Numbers. He's putting himself alongside what happened long, long ago to where he is going to the cross. And he's speaking in these terms. And Jesus does this over and over throughout the New Testament. And oftentimes, because we're not familiar with the Old Testament, by the way, this is why we need to know the Old Testament Because Jesus talks about the Old Testament all the time. And if you're not familiar with this story of Moses leading the Israelites through the wilderness and the snake and all that stuff, you're not going to understand this reference. And so Jesus does this all the time to this very educated, learned guy. And Nicodemus knows exactly what's going on, this connection between the Old Testament and who Jesus is. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. 
And then Jesus continues on to make another, yet another uh, reference to the Old Testament. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is using a Hebrew literary technique called remez. And he uses it over and over and over. And remez is a Hebrew word, and it simply means it's a hint. He said there's something kind of embedded, something kind of mysterious going on uh, in the text. From the, and it's, it's a reference to the Old Testament. And he's going to redefine, reshape, and speak something new. And so a remez is simply a hint. And so if I were to say to you, like a good neighbor, you would say, there is my hint, right? That was an easy one this morning, right? Now, if I were trying to find my people from the 80s, those of you who grew up with me in the 80s, and I said something like, there's something strange in the neighborhood. Who are you going to call? There's my people, right? From the 80s. Yeah, see, it's this hint of kind of setting things up. Here's another uh, remez for you uh, from the 80s. Just a small town girl living in a lonely world. She took the midnight train going anywhere, and you would say... Just a city boy, born and raised in South Detroit, took the midnight train going anywhere. Did none of you people grow up in the 80s? Man, I hear those words and I just, I, I just fill it in, right? You need the music? You don't want me to sing. Yeah. I mean, look at those guys. Can, can you just hear it? Ah, oh, those of us who grew up in the 80s. Jesus did this all the time. He would make these references, and people understood immediately what they were talking, what he was talking about. And a, a guy like, the, by, like Nicodemus, he would know without question, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Some of your Bibles say his only begotten son, right? And that Nicodemus and every Jewish person would go, oh my goodness, I can't believe he's going there. He's talking about Genesis 22.2. He's talking about the story of Abraham. Abraham's son, his one and only son, Isaac. And those of you who read the Old Testament, you know this story. Abraham and Sarah, they're getting old in age. They're getting up there in years. They're about 75 years old. God comes to Abraham and Sarah and says, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a child. And I'm going to make that child the father of nations. And future generations, there's just going to be like, look at the stars. That's how many people are going to be a part of your clan, your tribe. They're going to be your people. It's going to happen through your son. And they're 75 years old. And time goes on. And Abraham and Sarah are like, oh, come on, God. God's slow. You ever notice that God shows up on his time, not on your time? That's what's going on. That's what's going on. They wait. They wait. They're like, ah, we think God missed out. Or we have a better idea. We're going to fix things ourselves. Right? You ever tried to fix things yourself? 
something you think God has told you to do. Oh, I'll just, I'll take matters into my own hands. So Abraham sleeps. The servant is a child, Ishmael, right? I mean, some of you are like, I thought Abraham had two children, Isaac and Ishmael. Well, that was a disaster. Things went really, really bad for Ishmael. Ishmael represents works-based righteousness. Ishmael represents when we take things into our own hands and do things because we don't have faith and we don't trust in God. Ishmael represents Nicodemus, frankly. I mean, that's what the, the, the Pharisees were. It was all about this is the, these are the things we're going to do so that we can reach up and touch God. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 3, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Ishmael was a disaster for the nation because Abraham and Sarah did not in that moment have faith and trust in God as they should. Well, time went on, and now Sarah is about 100 years old. She has a baby, of course, a miracle. His name was Isaac. And this was Abraham and Sarah's one and only child, the one whom they loved. And so God comes to Abraham one day and says, Abraham, do you trust me? And Abraham's like, yep, I trust you. And God says to Abraham, take your son, your one and only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. So when Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus, this is what Nicodemus is thinking about. Abraham, Isaac, take your son, your one and only son, whom you love. Moriah means the Lord will provide. So Abraham and Isaac walking up. Remember, God said, take your son. Go to the region of Moriah. They're walking along and Isaac looks up at his dad and says, Dad, I got, we got the firewood. Uh, we made a nice altar. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, son, sit down. He ties him up. And there he is. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. So the story goes in Genesis 22, Abraham is ready to sacrifice his one and only son. That's what Nicodemus is thinking about. And just as he's getting ready to bring that knife down, all of a sudden an angel shows up and says, whoa, 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 wait, wait. Just wait. I've provided another way. There's another way. There's a substitute for this sacrifice of your son. And Abraham looks over, and there's a ram caught in the thicket, it says. 
And those of you who are farmers know that a baby ram is a lamb. A couple weeks ago, Jim Pitzer shared with us about the lamb who is the substitute. Do you hear all this imagery, all these things kind of coming together? All of a sudden, there's this lamb, this ram lamb, this lamb ram, who's going to be a substitute sacrifice. In the Old Testament, a father is about to sacrifice a son. In the New Testament, Jesus says, the father is going to sacrifice the son for all of eternity. That's what John 3.16 is all about. It's this reference to the Old Testament story of Abraham. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Nicodemus is thinking of Abraham and Isaac and a substitute lamb. Hmm. He's still not sure what to do. So Jesus continues on. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So Jesus clarifies, hey, I came into this world not to condemn you, not to condemn anyone, frankly. Condemnation is the language, the native language that is spoken by the enemy. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn anyone. I didn't come to condemn anyone. I came into the world to convict people of their sin, to see the folly of their brokenness, to see the ways in which they have turned from God toward themselves. Condemnation and conviction are two very different ideas. Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn anybody. Condemnation, by the way, uh, is a, it's a building term. And it simply means unfit for use. So as you think about condemnation, this is what we do to ourselves. And Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn you to tell you that you are unfit for use. I came to show you of your sin and the ways in which you have been separated from God, from me, so that we can live, you can live for all of eternity. This is the verdict, Jesus says. Light has come into the world, but people, you and me, love the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds uh, will be exposed. But everyone who comes uh, to, by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. What Jesus is saying is there are really only two options here, folks. You come into the world, your life is dark. In fact, you love the darkness. It's, it's who we are. It's our nature. We love the darkness. We were born into sin, and we spend all of our lives sinning. It's our human nature because we are separated from God. And you can stay in that sin. You can stay in the darkness. You can stay in your brokenness or... 
You can step into the light. You can step into the grace that I'm providing through Jesus Christ on the cross. See, there's no neutral here. There's no just, you know, you kind of read it and go, ah, I don't know. I mean, Jesus just does not offer that option. It's either stay in your darkness, stay in your sin, or step in or receive the light, receive the grace of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, one of the great theologians, says it this way. It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while it remains an egg. We are like eggs in the present. And you cannot go on indefinitely just an ordinary decent egg. You must be hatched or go bad. Isn't that good? He makes it very clear, we're, we're just an egg, and we have a choice. And to not make a choice is a choice. A thing that sits in an egg that never hatches, it goes bad, it dies, right? I mean, you don't need to be a farmer to know this. But that's really what C.S. Lewis is communicating here, what Jesus is teaching us. So why does three, John 3.16, why, why did Billy Graham use it all the time? Why do, why do we see it at ball fields? Why do we see it on shopping bags? Why do we see it on the, the bottom of a drink cup at In-N-Out Burger? Because it is so clear that as we sang at the beginning of the service that God loves us. He, come into the, he came into the world to rescue us, to save us from what we cannot save ourselves. Have you ever heard of Christianity being a crutch? You know, you, you kind of need Jesus to, to help you get around in life, you know, to, to help you move around. That's, that's, a, that's the wrong metaphor, folks. Jesus is not a crutch. He doesn't help you. Jesus is a stretcher. You're on your back. You can't do anything. You are dead to yourself apart from Jesus Christ. And as you lay on that stretcher, he invites you to be picked up and to be brought into the presence of God. And so when people hear John 3.16 or they hear the story of Jesus, like, God doesn't know about my sin. God doesn't know the things I've done the wild living I've done, the sin I've committed, the sin I'm living right now. God doesn't know. God doesn't understand. Or my sin's just too great. Well, I got good news for you this morning. Your sin is like a gnat on the back of an elephant of grace. Now, that is not a license to sin. That is freedom from sin. See, if you think that your sin is too great for you to be in a relationship with God, you don't understand how big God is. You do not understand how great His grace is. You do not understand that it took a man to sacrifice his own son. This is what the payment was. Your sin matters. It separates you from God. That's why God had to send His son Jesus. That's how horrible your sin is, how horrible my sin is. You can't just brush it over, just kind of clean it off. It required a man to shed his blood. For God so loved everyone, sinners, 
You're welcome. If, if you're in the everyone category, whoever, whoever, if you're in that whoever category, welcome. Welcome to the grace train. Welcome to what Jesus Christ has done for you. It's free. You don't deserve it. Free. He's just giving out salvation for free. But there's another class of people that struggle with John 3.16, and frankly, it's the, the, the group of people that I spend a lot of time with. Church people. The Nicodemuses of the world. The people who have a list. Came to church today. Read my Bible this week. Dropped something in the offering plate. Going to Sunday school. Went to Bible study. Served at Midwest Food Bank. I mean, you, we, we church people, we got a list, right? It's all the stuff we do. I think Jesus is saying the same thing to you, to me, church people. It's not what you do. You're not three quarters of the way up the ladder. Even you, church people, can be saved. Sometimes it's the religious people who are the most separated from God. You know that? I'm preaching to myself right now. Because we got a list. We think it's about what we do. And we need to be reminded over and over and over, no matter how much you've sinned, or no matter how many good deeds you've done, you're all welcome. You're all welcome to receive this grace of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you on the cross. I think that's pretty good news, right? Yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God uh, who loves us so much. You didn't just stay off in heaven and didn't just call out to your people telling us to try harder, to do more things. But you said, no, I got it. You sent your son on a rescue mission for sinners and for religious people like me. And so, God, we pray that on this day that we would be renewed again, that we would receive again this grace that you have poured out for each one of us. Today can be a new day for every single one of us, God. And so thank you. Thank you for wherever we have come from, God. You are inviting us again to hear and to embrace and to receive grace upon grace. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.